Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is June the 9th in 2022, and my guests are Sean Pauly and Rashid Griffith. Sean is the founder and CEO of Seshat Bank, an API-first, full-service commercial bank for Latin America. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. It's good to see you again. Same. Rashid is the COO and Chief Compliance Officer of Merkle Hedge, a company specialized in market making and asset trading software. Rashid, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So I invited Sean and Rashid to the show to discuss the intersection of innovation and regulation in fintech, particularly in banking and in crypto. Sean and Rashid have deep expertise as entrepreneurs, and they have to navigate a complex web of national and international regulations. In this conversation, I want to tease out lessons for entrepreneurs and innovators on how to navigate this complexity in the financial sector. If you want to meet the three of us in person, join us for the Prospera FinTech Summit on August 26 to 28 on the beautiful Caribbean island of Roatan in the country of Honduras. Go to infinitafunds.com to sign up. All right, let's jump into it. Sean, let's start with you. Please tell us about your background and how you've come to found Seshad Bank. Uh, sure. So um, I started work on Seshad Bank a few years ago after um, experiencing just a lot of frustration with East African banks um, and terrible customer service, terrible experience. And I started thinking about what a bank I would actually want to work with would, uh, would look like and what that kind of experience would be. Um, and my thoughts there really formed the nucleus of what eventually became uh, Seshat Bank. Um, so the key points there were the bank had to be API first, so it had to be very, very developer friendly. Um, people had to be able to build applications directly on top of the bank itself. It had to be something where you could easily do this um, and all of your banking functions could be automatable and programmed. Um, it had to be user friendly, so there needed to be very, very, very easy um, user flows. And we needed to have a very design-centric approach very, very early on in the process. Um, and then there were a few other things as well, such as Uganda and ESAP Visible was fairly low trust uh, region. And so there were some other things that I built in there, such as our escrow product to um, essentially allow people to uh, engage in commerce without actually uh, needing to trust each other. And 
you know, the, those sorts of things formed the core of what eventually became uh, a Bank. Now, I moved it from East Africa over to uh, here across Barrow. Um, just, well, actually, now it's a little bit over a year ago um, due to a considerably, considerably better legal environment uh, here in uh, here in Honduras. Um, basically, here we'd be operating under um, American uh, KYC AML law, which is generally just a much better degree of uh, enforcement and uh, it's much safer and it's much, it's a, it's a regulatory regime that our corresponding partners are very, very familiar with. Um, it's, uh, it gave us a lot of flexibility with regards to our risk management regulations and how we can actually, uh, interact with, uh, depositors and with, uh, with borrowers as well. Um, so we made the switch over to here and we've just been plowing ahead and, um, yeah, we're uh, we're about ready to launch. So, very, very, very happy with uh, with the work that has been done so far. Fantastic. So, customers that are in Honduras and in what other places can use your banking services? Well, as long as you're not um, on an OFAC sanctions list, uh, you can work with us. Um, so, you know, we're not really geographic centric. Um, as long as you meet our compliance standards. Um, we're happy to work with you. Fantastic. And what are the, what's the suit of products that you're offering right now? I know you announced a new product the past week. Yep. So right now we have a, uh, savings, uh, savings product that we've recently un announced for, uh, high net worths and for uh, companies, um, basically just help them better manage their, uh, their individual company treasuries and earn a little bit of interest on the side. Um, and. Alongside that, we're uh, we're also uh, starting to lend as well um, to a variety of uh, commercial entities. Fantastic. We we'll go back to you on that. Um, but Rashid, um, over to you. Please tell us more about your background and how you come to found Merkle Hedge. I started working in a cryptocurrency-centric company, Barbados, back in twenty fifteen. Uh, around that time. And from there, while I was in charge of essentially compliance and regulatory affairs, I had to speak with regulators across the Caribbean and across Central America. And that, you know, gave a lot of perspective on how regulatory interests think about new emerging markets and new emerging technologies and products. From there, I uh, did a similar job in Southeast Asia, you know, again, interfacing regulators, primarily working in compliance, building compliance departments in, in those areas to deal with fintech and specifically fintech that has an interaction with cryptocurrencies. After that, I did a bunch of consulting for some law firms in New York and had clients across the world in Southeast Asia, East Asia, Eastern Europe, Central America, and so on. I think around, uh, I mean, after two years more of doing that, I joined forces with some colleagues and friends that we co-founded a company that essentially uh, takes advantage of these opportunities that we've been seeing in the markets, primarily cryptocurrency markets, when it comes to spreads. Essentially, we make money on spreads. And in doing that, we do we design our own algorithmic trading systems, and we um, deploy capital on global cryptocurrency markets. Uh, about this time, we have four offices in four countries, Canada, Panama, Barbados, and Philippines. And we essentially do 24-7 high-frequency cryptocurrency trading. 
Fantastic. And what services do you offer to your clients and what clients would you like to attract to Market Lounge? Uh, I, I should say we're not very client-centric. Uh, it's primarily proprietary trading. It's a hedge fund attachment. So we have, for example, uh, very few uh, clients or commercial products. For example, we have clients that are um, cryptocurrency exchanges. We have clients that are hedge funds in themselves in their different markets. And we work with them to essentially design a strategy that primarily focuses on cryptocurrencies. Uh, over time, we're going to um, expand that to a larger client base. But uh, for now, it's uh, um, pretty, pretty much proprietary trading. Fantastic. Um, Rashid, you're based in Panama. Panama is known as a special jurisdiction for finance. Can you give us a background uh, to Panama as to why it's um, popular for financial companies? Panama designed its regulatory frameworks maybe two decades now to harness this uh, urge of financial companies to have much more stable and transparent regulatory um, regulatory outlooks in, in their operations. Essentially, Panama was that kind of cluster. Uh, however, uh, that has d decreased quite substantially over the last few years, over the last several years in particular. You know, post, for example, various scandals and corruption problems that the international world perceives to be the case in Panama. That has had a very large Panama case. Papers, right? Panama Papers, that's right. And, you know, that's some other things as well. As well. And uh, I think it, essentially that has caused a really big issue in, in Panama when it comes to financial service industry. However, it's still substantially large. It's, it don't, don't get me wrong. It's still quite big. And it still has very good, for example... Uh, tax treatment, very good, for example, clarity when it comes to the regulations like AML, KYC, um, liquidity, all those kind of things. And recently they've passed, uh, the Congress has passed a law in Panama to essentially go into this, what we call a cryptocurrency ecosystem. Uh, I say Congress has passed it because the president has not fully signed it as yet. But over time, before the end of the year, Panama will have a very, um, all-encompassing cryptocurrency-centric regulatory uh, system. That's going pretty exciting for some people. Fantastic. Um, Sean, back to you. How do you start a new bank? Can you give entrepreneurs who listen to this episode give a little step-by-step -step guide? Well, the first step is um, you hire a bunch of lawyers. Um, <laughs> any any time that you're starting a bank in any jurisdiction, um, there is a pretty substantial amount of compliance work that you just have to do up front just to um, interact with um, essentially the rest of the financial ecosystem. Uh, finance is a very, very, very heavily regulated space, um, and you need to be aware of that up front, and you need to uh, be willing to pay a fairly substantial sum for uh, for legal advice and for compliance work. Um, before you are ever operational. Um, so that's step one. Step two is just do whatever your lawyers say. Um, there's, you know, there, there's a process to, uh, acquiring a bank license in every jurisdiction on the planet. Um, follow the process, get the license. And at the end, you're able to take deposits, issue loans and do all of the other things. Um, now there are some ways around that. For instance, uh, so in the United States, it's very, very, very difficult to um, get a proper banking license. 
So a lot of companies, neobanks, um, have started up um, that are essentially piggybacking off an actual bank's license. Uh, now, what this piggybacking does, it does not allow the neobank to take assets or to uh, take deposits or make loans or do anything of that nature. Instead, the neobank is essentially a pass-through entity. So it acts um, basically as a UI, uh, UI UX improvement for the, uh, for the current bank. And it makes basically all of its money off of um, uh, interchange fees and a small portion uh, in, well, it's effectively just marketing fees, but basically it's a, it's an interest payment from the bank to the, uh, to the neobank based on the amount of deposits um, that the neobank has attracted to it. Um, so that's a fairly popular way in the United States and uh, in Europe to interact with the broader public. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly way, good way of going about it. Um, it's a lower cost way, but you, it's, it's pretty bad at uh, unit economics or uh, for a business like that. But yeah, as far as starting a bank, it was step number one is just hire a bunch of lawyers. That's, that's it. We're, we're in a very, very heavily, heavily regulated space, uh, no matter what jurisdiction you're operating out of. So, and the new bank, um, being piggybacking on existing institutions, is that, um, mostly in the United States or does it also apply to the big new banks in Latin America, like new bank or in 26 in Germany or Revolut? No. So, um, it applies to I believe Revolut actually has a proper banking license now and I think in 26 does as well. Um, but they all started off in the new bank model where, uh, an existing bank sponsored them. Um, and they were able to get basically all of their money off by interchange fees and, um, off of, you know, some poultry interest fee that the bank actually gave them. Um, but it's fairly popular in the United States and Europe. Um, you can see it elsewhere as well. Um, there are a few here in Latin America. Um, so for instance, new bank actually started off that way. Although new bank has since uh, gotten banking licenses in uh, Colombia and Brazil. So now they're a proper bank. Um, and you can see it over in, uh, in some Asian countries as well. Um, and in Africa too. Um, so it's a, it's, it's pretty well accepted, uh, model internationally. Uh, usually what it is is basically, um, companies or founders will, uh, will pursue this model basically as a way to demonstrate that there is actually traction for their idea. It really only makes sense for consumer banking, not for uh, anything commercially oriented. But for consumer banking, it's a way of essentially demonstrating that there is in fact demand for the kind of services that your bank would offer. Uh, and it allows you to relatively inexpensively test that um, before pursuing a proper banking license. Um, and so that's a fairly popular way of doing that. Um, there are some companies that retained the, uh, neobank models, such as cash app in the United States, even when they're large enough to, uh, get a proper banking license on their own. But, um, you know, it, it, it varies considerably in general, though, but, they do, uh, pursue bank licenses and means. But they start this way, particularly because the fixed costs are so high to get a banking license to, you know, the time it takes until you get it and compliance costs, right? Yeah. So from a compliance, so basically just from a starting up a bank point of view, um, 
So in most jurisdictions, you're looking at $10 million plus in, um, in basically, uh, equity that you can't touch. So this is money that's just going to be held in reserve, um, to protect against, uh, losses on loans. Um, so you have $10 million plus in capital requirements in many jurisdictions. It's substantially higher that. So in Honduras, uh, under the ordinary regime, it's, uh, about $20 million now. Um, if you're looking over in, uh, Rwanda, it was $7 million up until very recently. They just bumped it up to 20. Um, if you're looking in Colombia, it's $9 million. Um, so, you know, considerable variation, but that's still a substantial amount of money that basically you're asking investors to invest that you're not actually going to use. Um, and you're not actually going to be doing anything with. Secondly, just cost of developing the software for banking. Very, very expensive. You're looking at um, probably close to $2 million in uh, software development costs, um, minimum. Um, and very, very likely to be more than that. Um, and then there are all of the costs associated with uh, with card issuance. And if you're looking to receive cards as well or uh, act as a card acquirer, um, there are a whole host of additional costs associated with that. Um, so everything adds up very, very, very quickly. It's a pretty capital intensive project to, uh, to get it started up. So that makes it very hard, especially for startups to start new banks, right? But you have, um, you're going a different way. Can you tell us a bit why you've incorporated in Prosper and how you can use that to your, to your advantage? So within Prosper, we still have to meet certain capital requirements and, um, you know, we still have certain regulatory standards that we need to meet. And it's not like software standards or it's not like the software development cost goes away just because we're here. That development cost is the same no matter where you are on the planet. Um, but we chose Prosper mainly because it's just a considerably better legal environment. So we have um, much, much better clarity from uh, the government of Prosper with regards to um, how risk, uh, how the risk management laws are going to be uh, enforced, how um, Basically, auditing is going to be conducted, how uh, KYC AML laws are going to be enforced, how, you know, in general, it's just much, much greater clarity from uh, from the government and much higher quality um, as far as uh, regulatory enforcement goes. Um, it also is much, much, much better uh, than uh, the ordinary regime just as far as um, basically, I'll call it uh, asset seizure. So in the event of default, um, if we lend someone money to purchase a house or something like that, it can take a fairly considerable time, uh, to go through the ordinary court system in Prospero, we can uh, go through arbitration and get a judgment fairly quickly. Um, and you know, pursue and foreclose on, uh, any properties that have uh, defaulted very, very quickly. Fantastic. Um, Rashid, from your experience in the Caribbean, how is the environment, the regulatory environment in other parts of the Caribbean? Because I know there's many special jurisdictions, including Panama and Barbados, where you worked. Um, is there any location there that's especially interesting or conducive to, to set up a new bank? A new bank? Uh, I mean, Caribbean is not very known for its banking industry in any real way. Uh, a lot of offshore centers in the Caribbean focus on, for example, hedge funds, insurance, uh, mutual funds, um, trust, those kind of services. 
Um, of course, there are some offshore banking in the Caribbean, but it, it's not very uh, high-end. It's not very good, actually. So most of the times, the true utility for uh, a company, let's say, for example, a company in Panama, a bank in Panama, they might have a subsidiary in the Caribbean, but that is mostly used for uh, balance sheet optimization. So the fact that they will... Uh, given that some offshore Caribbean planters might have a less stringent requirement on non-performing loan portfolios. They will essentially outsource some of their non-performing loans to a Caribbean jurisdiction that's technically a bank subsidiary. But the bank in the Caribbean that really have that much customers and so on and so on. So in terms of those kind of like um, operational bank capacity optimizations, Caribbean is very good for that. But it has a Operating banking, uh, it, it has never tried really to be very good at that. So we've already touched on a number of international financial regulations, and these are important to understand for any young entrepreneur. Sean has already mentioned um, you need to start with lawyers to start a new bank, right? So it's very important to understand some of these regulations. So I'd like you... Um, Please give our listeners a quick walkthrough. What are AML KYC laws? Rashid, we can start with you and Sean, you can add in, you can add to it. Mm. So AML KYC laws have two very broad components. One is the international component and one is the domestic component. But every country on earth, uh, an incredible country on earth, has fairly sophisticated AML, KYC, CFT, and know what we call... To break up the synonyms, uh, AML means anti-money laundering, KYC knows you, know your customer. Correct. Also, CFT is counter to financial terrorism. It's also counter-proliferation financing, which is essentially uh, uh, anti-nuclear arms uh, financing. So that's, that's, a very, that's a very new one as well. And most countries... All credible countries have to have uh, legal frameworks to essentially prevent those things from happening. And the, the international bodies this is fairly new in, in, in the world. Uh, uh, the Financial Action Task Force is primarily a European body that only really, really got um, like teeth in like post 9 11. The US um, Bank Secrecy Act, for example, got really improved by the Patriot Act, which is also post-9-11. And also in the EU, they essentially upgraded their, their AML rules, uh, called AML directives, uh, post-2004. And those ones have been essentially pushing the globe in a much more complex, what, what they call compliant uh, culture for financial services. And in doing so, the idea is that, okay, well, you need to primarily collect a lot more information about your customers to prevent the idea of money laundering. Now, this is actually mostly just theoretical because the rules, for example, in AML, CFT, KYC, and, you know, um, counter-proliferation financing rules are actually just uh, mostly bureaucratic concepts. So, for example... Uh, Barbados does not have any material money laundering happening in the jurisdiction. But uh, you would think so because Barbados is considered a quote high risk jurisdiction by the 
Financial Action Task Force. But if you ask yourself, people tend to not ask you a question. Why exactly does FAPF consider Barbados to be a high-risk jurisdiction? It's not because of any proof of material lapse in AML rules. Because if, for example, you ask now, well, there's this war, you know, in Ukraine and Russia, and people say, okay, you've got to sanction a of Russian money, for example. Uh, yeah, that money is not in Barbados, for example. That's why it's in London, it's in New York, it's in Miami, so on, so on. So the reason why, for example, uh, Barbados is on the uh, high-risk residential list for FAPF is because, uh, in part, one of the main ways that Barbados does the analysis for AML, since the real anti-money laundering, is through something called the Capital Controls Act. Essentially, Barbados has a capital controls rule where if you need to get money out of Barbados, you have to go through the central bank and there are limits and so on. You're going to ask for clearance, so on and so on. So a lot of the analysis is say, hey, you're trying to get some money out. Where is it? This and that. But however, for the FATF, uh, they do not consider the uh, Apple Control Act a credible way of doing AML. They prefer that to be at the Proceeds of Crime Act. So when you read, for example, the review of FATF to Barbados, they will say, hey, you guys need to improve your Proceeds of Crime Act and not rely upon the Exchange Act to do AML. Therefore, you're high risk. That's actually a thing they said. So very oftentimes, the way you think of concepts, AML, and CST, and all these other initialisms, you got to remember that a lot of time is primarily bureaucratic discussions, but the material problem of AML, CFT is actually not that complicated. And uh, that's one of the weird things that I think people don't know about AML, CFT. A lot of it is bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic compliance, which is Unfortunately, you still have to do it because that is a rule, but um, it's not as complicated, I think, as people assume it is. But yet, people still don't want to do it. So there's the bureaucratic concept of MLKYC, right? And then there's the material, what do financial institutions actually do against money laundering, right? Mm -hmm. So, and there's kind of like, you know, what you do to be AML KYC compliant is not necessarily what you do materials to prevent anti-money laundering. Is that correct? That's, that's, that's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which kind of makes it, um, ineffective in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, AML, AML, let's call it general compliance rules are extremely wasteful. Uh, it's just notoriously wasteful, actually. And it has the secondary and tertiary effects that compound the wastefulness. If you do an opportunity cost calculation, uh, so it's one of those things where, you know, you, you, you don't really want to do it and you, you can make a very credible argument why you should not be doing it in this way that the regulations ask for. But the problem is that in the game theoretic situation, we are all, all in, we have to play the game. Fascinating. Sean, um, you mentioned before, there's a very high fixed cost for software development for banks. Do AML KYC compliance, does that play a role when it comes to software building? Can you kind of quantify how much of the cost that is for new entrepreneurs that think of starting something? So it's a decent portion of it. Um, but most of the, most of the cost for KYC and AML, um, comes in 
So you're going to pay a decent amount for uh, for KYC upfront just because you need to purchase. Um, as far as KYC software goes, the pricing for that is pretty much always sold in blocks. So you'll probably be spending seventy to one hundred thousand um, dollars just to purchase and license that software. Um, the transaction monitoring though is where it gets a lot more complicated. Now the software itself is you're you're going to pay a decent amount for that. But um, the costs for that are not necessarily front-loaded. Um, you're just going to need to pay for quite a few more uh, compliance personnel, um, or you're yeah you you're just going to need to pay for quite a few compliance personnel to dig through transaction records and uh, analyze um, individual transactions to determine whether or not they uh, meet you know uh, bank standards for uh, what would actually qualify as this as a suspicious transaction and uh, trigger an SAR. Now that's kind of fascinating to me, what we just, what Richard, what you said, sort of this mismatch between, um, you know, the regulatory requirements and the material effectiveness. Is it, uh, is it, would it go, would you go so far in saying that um, complying with MA, uh, AML KYC makes actual fighting, money laundering um, harder in some cases, or is that unrelated? I don't think it makes it harder. It, it, I guess it depends on what harder means, right? Because there are situations where you might be bogged down with specific regulatory requirements, so you can't really look into what could cause harm in your company. So I, I know that example, this is, uh, well, building consulting. Uh, clients who have to comply with rules, they have to have staff that do all these particular monitoring and so on, but no one was really thinking down to do the proper audits of the compliance system. They weren't really thinking down to actually save through really credible information. And they actually missed quite a lot of um, lesser than suspicious transactions. And the, that happens, but unfortunately, you can't not do the, the typical jurisdictional and international compliance, so you kind of have to double up again on the compliance departments. That's why, over time, um, uh, in data in the US is a lot more transparent. Uh, banks have been uh, tripling AML departments in the last three years. It's um, it's gotten that bad. The regulatory, the essentially the administrative bloat of AML has itself like changed the way how banking is done in especially large jurisdictions. So it's quite severe, actually. People kind of really underestimate how severe uh, AML compliance rules have become. That's fascinating to me because it's a story that frequently occurs with many regulation. Probably at some point, the laws have probably very good intentions. And at some point, they might have also made a lot of sense, right? But, you know, the world is complex and changing, right? Mm -hmm. So the regulation yeah. that you made at some point are not necessarily reflecting what you need to do to sort of fight what you're trying to fight. What you know, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of some, like, has a regulatory creep that is uh, very insidious in some ways. So you, you just, we, we eventually term money laundering quite a lot. But implicit in term money laundering is that you know what the term money means. So what is definition of money in money laundering? People assume that, you know, deposits and cash and coins and, you know, transfers and wires and all that stuff, which is an intuitively correct understanding. But actually recently, last like three years, uh, FAPF has changed the definition of money. 
in money laundering. So typically it was just M0, that's the cash and coins and deposits and it went up to just include like treasuries and those kind of things. But now it's all with M3, where it's like including things like long-term securities fraud and all those kind of things. And for small, small countries in particular that do not have any um, especially active capital markets, they still have to comply with all these like um, long-term capital market compliance rules, even though they don't have very active markets. So that, that actually makes the cost of compliance even um, higher and causes even more friction in, in those economies. And that's a very recent development. And it, you can you can think that that could also creep into other asset classes as well as now considered money. So even those kind of concepts aren't stable and those increase in time. And so I'm sure um, let's move on from AMLKYC. Um, Sean, can you explain what is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and how does it affect international finance? Well, just between countries and finance, too, too much, I would say. Um, it impacts investment in poorer countries, um, but I'll get into that later. Um, so the FCPA itself, uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, essentially prohibits um, any American businesses or persons subject to an American company, so any employees or agents of an American company, from uh, giving bribes to uh, foreign government officials. And the objective there is um, to hold U uh, U.S. companies and U.S. persons to a very, very high standard. Uh, That sounds good. And to uh, <laughs> and to uh, and to minimize corruption globally, um, companies can be held liable for uh, any bribes that occur, even if they were not aware of it, uh, even if they were not aware of them occurring. Um, but the end result of that has been that there's been a notable decrease in investment in um, quite a few poor countries um, that tend to be fairly corrupt, um, but. What it really means is that um, essentially if you are going to be um, investing in and putting money into a lot of these countries, um, you are typically going to be better off working in a special jurisdiction within those countries that has either relaxed or different rules uh, than the uh, national regime uh, simply to minimize your risk um, of exposure to the FCPA. Um, You know, you don't necessarily control your employees on the ground all the time. Um, and you certainly do not want uh, someone to bribe a foreign government official um, on your behalf, uh, even without your knowledge. Um, so you're typically better off just investing and uh, staying with special jurisdictions um, where the risk of uh, any kind of FCPA violation is minimized. That is fascinating. Sean, you worked in East Africa, so you have a lot of underground experience. So you're saying it's kind of very, you know, that seems like a good idea, but it's in practice very hard to comply when you can be held liable for what, you know, your, what employees do or what your subcontractors do, things like that, right? Well, it's pretty easy if you're a small company because then, you know, you're the one in control. Um, so if you're a small country or a small company and um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you ultimately, you know, control the company pocketbook, um, it's very, very easy to comply because all that needs to happen is, um, you know, if the police pull over, uh, one of your trucks that's delivering goods and they demand a bribe to let your truck pass, you refuse. And 
you know, that's, that's it. There you, you, uh, if, if anyone demands a bribe, you refuse and then you're compliant. Um, it becomes a lot more complicated for larger companies. Um, so fortune 500 companies, it's fairly complicated for them. And for most of them, they'll actually, uh, purchase, um, fairly sophisticated, um, FCPA compliance software just to ensure that, uh, none of the money that they have goes to a politically exposed person. Um, and they really try to minimize the risk of that, um, to the increased extent policy. Now that sounds good in some ways In other ways, it makes it very hard to build a bigger company or go to a country when you are a bigger company, right? Because, you know, you again, have a very high fixed cost for compliance and there's potentially also so many things that are just seem too risky for you for doing that you just probably deter a lot of companies from, from being more active in many poorer countries, right? Which would also benefit those countries, right? It does. And, um, there are quite a few large, uh, quite a few larger companies that simply don't have any operations, uh, in the global South due almost entirely to, uh, to the FCPA. Um, there are quite a few that do as well. Um, mining companies, oil companies, for instance, uh, you know, they, they don't decide where, uh, where the minerals are in the ground. They don't decide where the oil is in the ground. Um, they need to go where it is regardless, uh, the environment within those countries. Um, but they typically have extremely, extremely large, uh, legal departments dedicated just to, uh, controlling that kind of behavior. Fascinating. It's again, one of these unintended consequences, right? I'm sure the regulators who drafted that were thinking of what probably what they said, like minimizing, um, corruption. Um, and the unintended consequence is that you reduce investments for our countries. I mean, it all came about after, uh. After Lockheed Martin bribed um, a Dutch prince back in the 1970s, there was a massive, massive scandal, and that was really uh, was what brought about the whole law. Uh, right. the, but the problem with SEAP <laughs> is that even since 19, the Government Accountability Office, you know, it's, it's a very big office in the U.S. that people don't actually pay attention to. They write these reports that are, you will think are almost like heresy when you read them, but they write reports essentially reviewing the different regulations of the federal government. And I think even back in the 90s or actually could be even the 80s, they did like a review of the FCPA, so it's not too long after it was passed. And they said, you know, businesses, I think it was like one and a half of the businesses there surveyed, U.S. companies, large companies, say that they lost business because of FCPA. Uh, and we knew these numbers for a while now, but the problem is that the law of regulation has a stickiness. That even though everyone in the industry can say, oh, it's a terrible regulation. I mean, it's still, it's still there. Yeah. Very good point. The stickiness, right? I mean, it's not, you know, when you're, when you're a business and you have a department that doesn't work well, right? So you can get rid of the department, but with the regulation, once, you know, you know, it has unintended consequences and it leads to, you know, things that you didn't want, you can't just easily just scrap it, right? That happens very rarely. Yeah. I also say that this is the, the constant like push and pull between regulators, most regulators and industry, where there's different interests that are trying to be optimized. So regulators optimize for essentially um, performance art. They have to show people that they're doing something for very superficial ideas that the people think are bad or that are good, you know, very bland concepts. 
So they are not optimized for efficiency in, in say, profitability in companies. They, that's, not their, that's not their game they're playing. Where companies got to play a different game, a little profit motives and uh, stakeholder uh, growth and so on. So you're all going to have this kind of regulatory push and pull. And especially in sophisticated markets where industry is quite large and regulatory um, uh, systems are also quite large. So the FCP is, you know, one of thousands of examples of this very boring analysis. Yeah, exactly. Um, by the way, um, since you correctly said, Rashid, we probably all agree on sort of the scrutiny that regulators could get for some of these um, laws, should get for some of these laws. If you're a regulator or a policymaker and listening, you know, you feel free to be invited on the show to debate our points here, right? Because, you know, with all discussions about sort of how can we unlock innovations, right? And we're talking often about how regulations are, um, you know, not innovation friendly. It's also very important to mitigate against risks, right? So I'm inviting you up on the show if you want to debate those points with us. I mean, I, I would also like, Double down what I said, where I, I, I oftentimes it's not that regulators do not understand unintended consequences. It's that that's not the thing uh -huh. they have to care about. So in, in, in most systems, regulators are not there to regulate. They're there as essentially political appointees from politicians. That's mm -hmm. usually how it is. So the system doesn't really enable them to be very good for industry. I mean, in, in financial regulations, you can see it's very, very plainly. So they might actually agree with what we are saying, but that doesn't mean too much. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, many regulators um, are quite aware that they can have a profitable career in industry after they're regulators, right? So the counter argument would be very often they are actually working towards the industry, uh, towards the interests of many companies, right? Yeah, in many ways, that's true. In many ways, many individual people do do that. But the uh, very oftentimes, the the system isn't even with parts. Now, of course, that's our interpretation, right, um, that I agree with. But, you know, many people who go into regulation, go into policymaking, go into government, would say they do it for noble purposes, right, to actually sort of fight anti-money laundering, to fight money laundering and things like that, right? But let's just leave that there. I'd like to move over to another uh, interesting piece of regulation. Um, Rashid, can you tell us a bit more about securities laws? I'm particularly interested because, you know, the title of the show is Stranded Technologies. And I learned recently about um, securities laws, right? So this is a new field for me. What I learned is that securities laws came about um, in the New Deal era to regulate stock market exchange, right? The security basically means, um, you know, it's an asset that you can trade, you can buy and sell it, right? Back then they were thinking about stocks and um, there's a limit on, uh, and securities need to be registered with the SECs to be, uh, to be tradable, right? Correct me or edit me if I say anything wrong. Now what's interesting now in the debates around cryptocurrencies uh, or tokenized assets, is that regulators often invoke these securities laws, right? So they're saying, you know, a coin or sort of a, you know, piece, a tokenized asset, say, for example, you're tokenizing real estate into multiple pieces and buying it and selling it, or NFTs are in fact securities. And as such, they need to be registered with the SEC. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I, I correct one part first. Securities, uh, equities form a very small subset of securities. There are many broader things that also count as securities. So in terms of cryptocurrencies, the aspect of securities law that people think of is called investment contracts, which is essentially something you buy to get a profit from. Uh, that's a very, you know, very bland version of it, but essentially that's what it is. Now, this has been very clear to be a security for case law is, you know, very strong on this since the 1940s, uh, actually. And I think in most cases, when you look at the facts and circumstances of um, a lot of cryptocurrency offerings, tokens, ICOs, any kind of frame you want to put that in, yeah, they do fall under this investment um, investment contract definition. I mean, you know, very much uh, clear, very much there for anyone who works in finance for, you know, many, many decades now. So I don't, I don't really think it's too controversial, really speaking. The problem is that people say, so what? That's, 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 that's the problem. They say, okay, mm-hmm. well, maybe it's security there. Why should we want to comply anyway? Because that's, that's a different part. The question is, if it is security, in most cases, not all, yeah, you can make the argument that it is security, uh, called an investment contract. But then the question is, should it be security? Well, that's a very different question. Yeah, that's exactly my point, right? I mean, you know, securities laws are, you know, almost a hundred years old and now we're facing kind of new innovation on sort of the alternative money side, crypto and Web3 and NFTs. Um, but, um, it's kind of what I mean by a stranded technology. Some of these regulations are holding back some of that innovation, right? Because when you're doing, for example, a tokenized real estate marketplace, uh, like my wife is going to set up, um, you know, you living under that threat that regulators say probably correctly that these are securities. And if they are securities, you need to register them with the SEC or their regulator, which makes it, would put it, you under the purview of facing, especially again, very high compliance and regulatory costs, right? So that would deter a lot of investors. And that again, sort of undermines innovations that I think could benefit a lot of people, right? I mean, why not? democratize access to finance more. Why don't you let, why don't, why not let people invest in startups, which is also for other reasons hard because of the accredited investor rules. So, so yeah, <laughs> I think, it, um, the, you know, regulators should ask themselves the question, or we should ask the question, why do we have these regulations in the first place? Why? Well, I, I, I think, I think you gotta be careful of this one because regulators don't make laws. They enforce and refine laws. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, why shouldn't U.S. Congress repeal the law? That's, that's, that's the question you have to ask because regulators okay. cannot do that. Right. So the, the Securities Act of 34 or 33 were passed by Congress. So you, to actually have a drastic revision of those, it would have to be a congressional type thing or a very high Supreme Court type thing, which the Supreme Court does not do that kind of um, drastic policy changes. So that would have to be a congressional change. And as you might know, the U.S. Uh, passing these kind of fundamental laws is not a thing the U.S. does anymore for various other reasons. So I, I think you've got to be careful. It's, it's not it's actually not a regulator 
that's causing the problem in this case, but they're just enforcing the law as it is, which is yeah, um, Congress. Thanks. That's a very, very important clarification, Rashi. Thanks for not letting me get away with <laughs> telling something very imprecise. I agree in some ways that the regulations, the law itself is very, it, it doesn't help expanding essentially the class of investors in in very real way. And that could cause um, the lack of capital formation in many strong ways. At the same time, so yes, on one level, I understand, anyone could understand why the law was passed to protect people from, you know, essentially losing all their money. The problem is, if you're going to talk about consistency in laws, I mean, you can, for example, you can go buy a gun and kill 10 kids, but you can't put your money in a startup. So when you, when you think about consistency or many kind of things, it doesn't actually work out. So I, I, I think that a better alternative, you know, some many lawyers and economists have essentially uh, made this point, which is like you should just have a, a, a requirement to have very clear disclaimers, something called a dumb disclaimer, where it's like, if you want to invest in this thing, you got to sign something and say, hey, this is actually very high risk. It could actually either be dumb and you could use all your money at one time. Sign here, please. Well, you can't, can't claim you don't know the risks at that level. So I think stem color things like that kind of simplification, for example, is a much better um, way to go about you know, the capital formation aspect. Which I think it'd be more the product you have in securities law where the, the formation part is too difficult. However, you still need to have the protection part where it is that, well, if, for example, this company becomes a big company for the seller public market, it has to have security. You, you have to have security that everything actually is managed properly. And that aspect of security law, I think, is quite fine because you don't want to come and just say, okay, well, we actually spent all the money. We, we don't really got to tell you anything. So, boom, we're, we're done. That's, that's bad. That kind of thing. So it's sort of prudential regulation of securities markets. Then you can say the regulation is actually pretty good. In terms of the capital formation aspect, yes, I can see the friction. I do think that should be changed, but that's a congressional problem. Fantastic. And I also agree that, um, you know, there can be, uh, it needs to be prudential regulation, right? It's just the way political incentives are created. We're often more likely to get bad regulation and good regulation, but I'm all pro good regulation. Mm -hmm. um, Sean, do you have anything to add when it comes to securities laws? Well, uh, I, I agree with Rashid on, uh, on those points. In general, I would um, say have stricter enforcement of fraud laws and get rid of uh, most of these securities laws. Um, but basically if you're raising money for something and like Rashid said, you go out and you spend it all on the unrelated things, that sounds a whole lot like fraud to me. Um, or if you mislead your investors or, you know, anything of that nature, um, stricter fraud enforcement and, uh, broader fraud enforcement would seem better than, uh, than securities laws. Um, and at least as far as democratizing investment and making sure that people have access to, uh, to, you know, a lot of the high growth companies that are out there. Great. So let's get to another um, piece of regulation that are um, very important in the international finance context. Sean, can you can you talk about risk management regulations? Sure. So, uh, well, this this applies a lot more to me than uh, than to Rashid anyhow. Um, but risk management 
regulations uh, themselves just apply to uh, banks and it really covers uh, you know, what you can and cannot do with, uh, with deposits, how much risk you can take, um, what kinds of risk you can take and things of that nature. Um, so in most of the wealthy or, uh, most of the wealthy countries around, uh, planet subscribe to, uh, an agreement called the Basel Accords. And there have been multiple versions of these that have gone out, uh, since, uh, since, you know, the financial crisis and these laws basically cover um the amount of equities the banks are required to uh hold in reserve um what uh banks are allowed to do how uh assets are going to be uh risk weighted um covers a number of different things basically um but banks in those countries need to uh follow these sets of rules um the general idea is that if you require banks to be better capitalized and take lower risks then the then the chance of uh Essentially, a catastrophic bank failure, like happened in uh, 2008, is substantially lower. Uh, now, when you're getting into less developed countries, um, it doesn't necessarily make sense to hold the banks there to uh, to those kinds of standards, uh, simply because you're trying to encourage economic growth and the business standards themselves require banks to hold substantially more uh, equity and uh, long-term capital in reserve they may have, they may necessarily want to in a developing uh in a developing economy um but they kind of follow things that are similar uh to the basel uh system um central banks will have you know the five different uh the five different asset categorizations and sign various risk weightings to them um, banks will need to have a certain amount of capital right in, uh, in reserve. Um, banks will need to have a certain amount of cash on hand to meet, you know, their, uh, their current withdrawal needs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's the basic way that, uh, that bank risk management works around the planet. It's simply handled either by, um, the central bank or by a bank supervisor. Um, it can be one or both. Uh, it depends on the country. Um, and yeah, that's very, very broad strokes how, uh, how the risk management side of things works. Um, now for us, we operate under a slightly different system here in Prospero. So we operate under the Pondbrook for all seasons model, uh, proposed by Murray in his book, The End of Alchemy. So the Pondbrook for all seasons model really just, um, well, it, it changes a few things, but basically, um, the, the uh the kind of risk weighted assets all of that the basal system it goes away under uh under this uh under this regime instead what happens is banks and other regulated entities are required to open up their uh their book to the central bank or another uh large or another uh, credible third party lender and this uh this central bank is able to see all of the assets that uh, that these banks have on hand and is able to assess haircuts against these individual assets. And the banks are required to uh, maintain at any point in time, uh, essentially an amount of capital on, or an amount of equity or long-term capital on hand equivalent to assets less whatever haircut the central bank assesses. Um, this in general, uh, will require banks to be more conservative with uh, their current liabilities, but they're able to be much more creative with their, uh, with their long-term capital. Um, 
the idea is it also can you explain that can you explain it again that they're more conservative with their current liabilities but are taking more risk when it comes to when it comes to other assets yeah sure so uh you'll notice that with that formula assets less haircut it needs to be greater than um the bank's current liabilities and the reason for that is that um when you're talking about deposits themselves central bankers are primarily concerned about um i'll call it you know, the, well, they're, they're concerned about current depositors. If grandma has her money in the bank, no one wants grandma to lose all of her money because the bank went under. Um, and so it's, it's all about concerning, uh, retail depositors and people who have, uh, current accounts with these banks. It's also about ensuring that the bank itself actually survives, um, long enough for, or I'll call it, um, if the bank is in fact insolvent, it's about ensuring that the bank survives long enough where assets can actually be spun off and, you know, Longer term liabilities can, the bank can come to some kind of an arrangement with, uh, with its creditors. Um, but it also gives the central bank more insight into, um, how the banks are actually capitalized and, uh, what kind of, uh, arrangements the bank has with other banks, what kind of counterparty risk it's, uh, it's exposed to. And it gives, uh, central banks and regulators a much, much, much more uh, transparent look into the overall ecosystem. So what's the, um, can you talk a bit more about the problem with that, uh, model? Like you also in other, in other times call it the lender of last resort model. I mean, so that, uh, it's related to, uh, the, it, well, it's somewhat related to the topic that we were just discussing, but, um, the lender of last resort model just says that the bank is going on, it's a bank has short-term liquidity uh, needs the central bank can step in and provide some financing uh, so that this bank can, you know, meet its short-term withdrawal needs and there's not going to be a run on the bank. Um, so it's just there to, uh, to provide short-term financing uh, in the event of emergencies. Um, and essentially every central bank around the world uh, fulfills this function. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, short, short-term liquidity is very, very important for banks, but ultimately central banks. So in the event of a crisis, like what happened in 2000 bank and, uh, 2008, the central bank doesn't actually know which banks are in fact solvent and which banks are, you know, insolvent. Um, every bank is going through a, through a, uh, liquidity crunch all at the same time. Um, but for some of them, that's just a temporary crisis for others. This is indicative of far, far deeper problem. Um, the central bank doesn't really know which is which. Um, so it gives a lot more transparency to the central banks so that they actually know which is which and they're able to, you know, effectively go in and they can, uh, they can intervene. They can save the current depositors, but, um, you know, counterparties who engage with that bank are still, you know, on the hook for whatever when, uh, when this bank goes under. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's essentially greater transparency to, uh, yeah. to regulators. That's, that's one of the big, big benefits. So from correct a, me if I'm wrong, but that sounds to me like bank bailouts, just more targeted, right? That's the change to compare to 2008. Not really, not really. Um, yeah. basically the lender of last resort model would actually be a bank bailout because the central bank doesn't know which banks are insolvent and which banks are solvent. So the central bank would be bailing out banks that are not in fact good businesses um with the pawnbrook for all seasons model the central bank knows which ones are solvent and which ones are not 
and the central bank will simply be um, oh, essentially uh, providing uh, enough capital so that uh, all of the current depositors can withdraw their funds or, uh, you know, they can switch to another bank or uh, this bank can be sold to another one. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I was confused um, between sort of what you're proposing, the pawnbroker for all seasons model and the lender of last resort model. I saw where it seemed to me that's a weakness of the lender of last resort model, right? That you don't have that transparency yeah, so, in the banks. Yeah, so the lack of transparency can certainly contribute to uh, to issues. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, it can lead to bailouts. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to, the central bank may just decide to take a loss on any, uh, loans that are made to, uh, bad banks, uh, or it can choose to bail them out and, uh, you know, make them solvent again by lending them even more money. Um, but you know, that's, that's ultimately going to be a, a question for the central bank itself. Um, just to, but the, yeah, the pump for all season model essentially obviates a lot of the, it, lot, it obviates a lot of the risks associated with, uh, with that model. Yeah. yeah. And it and makes the whole to, system more transparent. Yeah. Just to ponder a bit on that point, even at the risk of you repeating yourself, because I think it's a very important point, but why does Mervyn King say that the current, um, system, how central banks, um, operate and sort of the regulations they put banks under and what they do in case of financial emergency is basically um, bound to repeat the mistakes of the past when it comes to the financial crisis. What's sort of his diagnosis and how does the pawnbroker for all seasons model potentially overcome this weakness? Well, his main, uh, his main objection to the current system is just that there's um, not enough information to actually address a lot of the uncertainty that's in place in banking. Um, banking is never really a game of certainty. It's always a game of odds. Uh, and essentially from his point of view, um, from back when he was governor of the bank of England, uh, the central bank just doesn't have enough transparency in these banks, the kind of counterparty risk that they're exposed to what their books actually look like to, uh, make these loans effectively in the event of a crisis. Um, and so by switching over to Pondberg for all seasons of the ball, you actually minimize the risk to current depositors. You give the central bank a lot more, um, a substantially more uh, clarity as far as what bank operations actually look like. And you just make the whole system much, much safer. Got it. So uh, all these questions are really, really important and have wide ranging impact, right? So, and that's something that you're trying to change with your bank too, right? So you see the potential for broader adoption of that model and sort of, um, sort of often more open banking API first model that you're, that you're innovating. I think that the API first aspect is something that's going to be, um, implemented by a lot of banks globally. Um, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if Mervyn King's proposed, regu uh, proposed regulatory framework is going to be adopted more broadly. Um, Prospera is the first jurisdiction globally to have adopted it, and I don't know of others that are considering it at the moment. Um, so I can't really uh, comment or say that anyone else is going to copy it. But um, at least as far as the API first banking goes, I think that that's uh, I think that that's going to be a fair and popular model uh, globally in the long run. Right. Um, what do you see? What what things other than regulation do you see? as a challenge when it comes to innovation in the financial space? Um, I mean, when it comes to innovations in the financial space, 
I tend to think that um, once something is legal, the innovations happen pretty quickly. Uh, or once it's legal or technically possible, innovations tend to happen very, very, very quickly uh, in the financial space. Um, a lot of the innovations within finance um, has, yeah, I'll say they have more to do with uh, with legal changes than uh, than a lot of other things. Uh, so when you're talking about uh, banking law in particular, uh, quite a few of the historic innovations um, within payments and within um, within lending models and within uh, how deals themselves are structured uh, came about due to the legal regimes that were operating in the various European principalities um, up until you know the uh, the early 1800s. Um, feels like once the 1800s rolls around, feels like a lot of things kind of standardized across the globe, um, at least with regard to financial laws. Um, or at least the broad principles of financial laws. Um, but before that, there was a pretty significant amount of variation. Uh, so you had things like uh, the Medici Bank and a lot of the early banks uh, made their monies entirely off of bills of exchange, which was a workaround uh, due to the prohibitions on usury in, uh, in capital Europe at the time. You see, um, you know, the uh, Fugger. Uh, so uh, Jacob Fugger, he was uh, one of the probably the first modern banker um, in the 1500s. He was the personal banker of the Habsburgs. Um, he tended to not actually lend at interest. What he instead would do would be he would lend, he would uh, give money to the Habsburgs uh, in exchange for all of the revenues generated by a silver mine or some other asset that the crown itself held. Uh, and the loan itself would be tied to the revenues generated by that specific asset. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the whole Dutch East India Company and joint stock formation and all of those things as well. But um, a lot of the innovation within the financial sector tends to follow legal forms um, and not precede them. Um, and there are some other things as well recently, uh, just uh, with regards to disintermediated payments uh, within the crypto space that are new and those do precede uh, legal changes, which is unique uh but you know we'll uh we'll see they haven't been too too broadly adopted yet and we'll see uh we'll see how uh how far uh how far that particular stream goes yeah and also crypto was kind of like same as digital and the internet like that came without any significant regulation addressing kind of what it is or what it does right instead of regulations in a way lagging behind to giving you know entrepreneurs enough time to to create new things, right? Mm, well, I also uh, I don't know. There's uh, the uh, the crypto space itself. I tend to think that it has been dramatically overhyped as far as how much uh, innovation and how much you know new things it has actually generated. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it. At the time that it was created, it was uh, largely unregulated um, or in the event that there were regulations, they were not enforced. Um, and that has given it a bit of a way to turn into uh, to turn into what it is today. Rashid, would you agree with Sean that crypto is hyped? 
gets hyped by who? Mm-hmm. Um, I I will agree in in sense that most of the activity in crypto, when it comes to finance related things, is quite lame, and it's lame because you're trying to just catch up with what already exists in financial markets. Here's the technology, here's the infrastructure, here's the instruments. The whole thing is just they're reinventing uh, what's already, well, reinventing, but essentially um, coming to terms with what's already existing in the world. Um, I tend to think, yeah, I, mean, I tend to think most of crypto is quite boring, but it's not a very bad thing, right? We, we trade crypto, but it's not because it's, you know, some new things from Mars is because there's opportunity to make money from it. That's that's how that's how we see it. I mean, we don't consider ourselves a crypto company. Um, I think people kind of misunderstand what it means to be a crypto company. And a lot of times, it just sounds good to say you're a crypto company, but you actually don't do anything on the technology side. So I think most of the uh, there hasn't been much innovation in crypto when it comes to financial stuff. I actually don't think the biggest breakthroughs that are crypto-centric will be financial-related uh, either. And it, no reason it should be. Now, in terms of also general financial innovation, uh, I think most of it has uh, you know, slowed down quite substantially. There are lots of things that we could be doing, even, even say should be doing, in financial innovation that we don't. And I think all this uh, big interest now in crypto payments and Payments in general is, you know, it's very, very boring, and it's actually very inconsequential to capital formation. So a lot of things that actually help capital formation or should be the goal of actual financial innovation isn't discussed that heatedly, I'd say, in technology circles as yet. There are very sophisticated players, of course, that discuss these things very, you know, very concretely. But most of the discussion is, you know, just noise and. That will be the case for quite some time, I think. But um, uh, it, it, you really haven't seen much financial innovation, um, really, in, uh, in the last like twenty years. What are what are the kind of financial innovations we're thinking of that aren't talked about enough? So, so there, I guess there are two kinds. One is essentially monetary innovation, one is called, one then financial innovation, where I don't really think it's the same thing. So, in some ways, for example, the difference between essentially interest rates in emerging markets and interest rates in developed markets are quite widespread. The way to intermediate that is not a very trivial problem and it is a technology problem. We haven't really figured out exactly how to do that as yet either. That's a fairly simple issue. Uh, doing, you know, the, 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 the ideas of having, I think people kind of um, underestimate, for example, the magic of a 30-year mortgage. Like, if you were to break down what that means to have a 30-year mortgage to build you over time, it is, it is quite fascinating that we humans have been able to engineer such an instrument. But those kind of instruments over time are actually quite innocent. Uh, things, for example, like actually having liquid prediction markets is, is a financial problem. It's a financial industry called a financial engineering problem. And prediction markets can actually impact quite good for especially poor countries. Uh, even for example, things like having, um, it's a guy called Robert Schiller, Nobel Econ- uh, economics laureate, has idea what we call macro markets, essentially market and macro variables. Suppose you have, for example, a derivative contract on the GDP projections for Barbados. 
that will actually help our ability to stabilize different growth rates over time and have um, different liquidity sources that will reduce borrowing rates for capital, liquidity, and bonds. Those things don't exist yet either. So there's so much uh, financialization that's yet to happen, that should happen for the benefit of capital growth across the world that isn't there yet. And things like payments is honestly quite lame. John, do you have anything to add on innovations that are not enough talked about? I mean, I completely agree with some uh, on that. Um, as far as other things, well, he mentioned 30-year mortgages. I I wouldn't really consider them to be a positive innovation. Um, they, there's a whole lot of very, very negative uh, side effects that come with that. And uh, it involves a whole lot of government distortion of, uh, of the market that I don't think it's particularly uh, desirable, but um, no, it's I with with the broad strokes. I I tend to agree with him. Um, I also tend to disagree with this point that um, the divergence in interest rates between uh, developed and developing markets is a technology problem. I think it's first and foremost a legal problem, uh, and it has to do with uh, essentially just the cost of recouping assets. Uh, and just the nature of the legal environment in uh, in those countries. I think that's really the primary driving figure. Um, there are some other things as well. So for instance, uh, countries that have very high birth rates are just by nature of that fact uh, going to have substantially higher interest rates uh, due to the fact that a lot of uh, expenses associated with people are front-loaded, um, education, roads, power consumption, all of those things. Uh, people incur before they actually start generating income. Uh, and so you should expect uh, developed countries with high birth rates to have much, much higher interest rates just based on that, even in uh, the event of comparable legal environments. Uh, yeah, I think uh, just improving quality of regulation, improving um, the needs of contract enforcement, um, improving the ease of asset recovery. Um, I think that all of those things would uh, reduce interest rates in the uh, developing world a pretty fair amount. So I don't disagree that it would juice interest. I'm not saying actually I'm not saying that interest rates uh, are uh, are the problem to reduce per se. I'm saying that the capital um, allocation of low interest rate environments to a high interest rate environment is something that should be taken advantage of, and that in itself is not easily done right now. And yes, there is a legal jurisdiction problem, for example. But that is not something that will be engineered away anytime in that future, in the near future. However, there can be te- also technological solutions to perform capital allocations across borders that will actually not be that much hampered by these uh, regulatory problems. For example, like I should be able to, well, for example, I do a lot of work in Cambodia. I know the history of Cambodia quite well. I should be able to do this come good. It should be a platform, essentially. Uh, say a platform to split glib, but it's also more complicated than that. To transfer money from the US to Cambodia to take advantage of this spread. But that's not something that's very um, easily done right now. And yes, I understand the the cross jurisdictional problems, but I'm saying, suggesting, sorry, that there could be a technological solution to that. And in many other comparable situations, they have been. That's just more of a very thin point. The other issues of why it's there is, is the different different problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you on on all of those points. <laughs> no disagreement from uh, from me on those. Fantastic. 
um, are these financial innovations that you have in mind, are they going to happen in the innovation capital of the world in Silicon Valley or in California? I don't know that California is the innovation capital of the world anymore. That ecosystem certainly has the best, um, the most capital to actually invade in these areas. Um, and it certainly has the most resources to actually do things in these areas. Um, whether or not they will actually do things in that air in these areas is a whole another question. Mm -hmm. Um, but they certainly have the means and the resources to actually do something there. Whereas I don't really think the rest of the world does. Like California seems to be imposing more and more regulations. It's getting more and more expensive. Housing is becoming unaffordable and people are increasingly moving out of California to Texas or Florida. So they are doing that. Um, I don't know that that will necessarily impact a lot of the changes that we were talking about. Um, it's so the point that, uh, myself and Rashid were more discussing with this speech, California itself and Silicon Valley more broadly has, uh, the resources and the means to go after this, whereas no other place really seems to happen at this point. Um, the question right now is whether or not people that actually are there have the, um, the inclination to, uh, to pursue some of these opportunities. Uh, and I don't know that they necessarily do. Um, California and Silicon Valley as a whole is fairly provincial. I don't know that they would really go in for a lot of the things that, uh, that we've been discussing so far. Yes, I, I agree with that point. I think that there's, um, there's a talent problem. I think primarily if the issue really, if there's a capital constraint, but it's a talent problem in the sense that, you know, there's this, you know, um, you can phrase it as the most brilliant minds of the, our generation are slinging ads that's PowerPoints that Goldman Sachs on Facebook, right? That's, that's their job. But the, if they would be doing other things, you would have a lot better, um, innovation system in, 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 in the, in the world because they have the talent and they have access to the capital. But there's this issue where the talent is kind of trapped into these large institutions, essentially doing grunt work. And unless we can somehow break that mold, which I am not very optimistic on in the short term, um, a lot of these like uh, far-reaching issues are going to persist. Uh, even now, you're seeing that people are leaving, you know, Google. Say, oh, Google is so boring now. I've got to go do some startup. But the, there's still so much talent trapped into these uh, these uh, large institutions that uh, that that causes perhaps a supply shock when it comes to solving big problems. Uh, you know, that's, that's a very pronounced problem. But would you agree about the trapped talent problem and what's, what's holding talent back from, from, you know, starting your own things, moving to other places more, like there's I mean, a lot of money, money about sort of complacency in the United States and sort of lower rates of labor mobility, lower, you know, lower birth rates and sort of generally a lower um, amount of startups being founded or new companies being founded. I don't necessarily know that the golden handcuffs are the reason, or I, I don't necessarily know that the golden handcuffs are really holding back uh, innovation rates. Um, mostly because I'm not sure that a lot of the people who um, are held back by golden handcuffs are the kinds of people who have the mentality to go out and start um, something really, really big. 
Um, I mean, just but using they, they need for... to work in the places though, because you could have a very brilliant founder that has good vision and so, but he needs a good team. And these, mm-hmm. this, this actually is a shortage of technical talent globally, or well, especially in the US in particular. And if this, if this talent is just, you know, kind of, if we have very good financial engineer, just find they're, they're just happy doing PowerPoint slides with Goldman Sachs, or good AI scientists doing um, ad generation for Facebook. You gotta get a team to be able to fund your very good innovation, even though you are a very good founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is uh, that is true. Right. So, um, what do you hope that we can achieve through locations that just prosper? How can we overcome sort of the um, the barriers to innovation? I think that the Prosper platform, platform itself has done a very, done a very good, good job, job of addressing, addressing a lot of little challenges. Uh, uh, if you have if a, you have a product, product that thing. Should be should legal, be legal, and, and as long as you're not violating the name, various various codes that apply, um, um, you should be able to produce and sell it within Prospera, and you should be able to determine whether or not it would actually make sense, and whether or not there would be a market share. Generally speaking, I think you just need a space where the people in charge say, "Let's do stuff." I mean, it's me raise that simple because that inculcate this culture of growth and progress. I get to work. And sometimes people kind of underestimate how important that is. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, I think this is also a great way to, um, to end the conversation. Let's build. <laughs> John and Rashid, it's been a really great pleasure talking to you. I think you've given our listeners very, very important insights into how they can um, get started and navigate the complex landscape of regulations to bring innovations to market. And also you've given us a lot of great ideas on what to think about um, when it comes to making real change in international finance and what tools we can use to make that work. So thank you, Sean. Thank you, Rashid. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.